Hi, this is Dan O'Shea, the author of Penance, and you're listening to Booked. Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. This week's review, Rotten at the Heart by Bartholomew Daniels. Um, settle in, kids. This is a, this is a long author bio here. <laughs> Bartholomew Daniels is an avid book collector, and it was through his purchase of a wooden chest of unwanted novels and forgotten papers at an estate sale in Illinois last year that he made the extraordinary discovery of several lost Shakespeare journals. Bartholomew is also a close friend of novelist Dan O'Shea, who encouraged him to set about editing these manuscripts so that modern readers might be able to thrill to them also. Bartholomew Daniels said, Shakespeare the writer is the colossus of English literature, but Shakespeare the man is an enigma. These manuscripts I've been privileged enough to discover and edit cast new light on Shakespeare's secret life as a detective in the cutthroat world of Elizabethan England. From his mother's womb, untimely ripped on April 23, 1959, Bartholomew, a Chicago-area writer, is a longtime Shakespeare aficionado and sees the chance to edit the Bard's lost journals detailing Shakespeare's unfortunate adventures as an unwilling Elizabethan gumshoe as the chance of a lifetime. Mr. Daniels can be reached online at BartholomewDaniels at Yahoo.com, or you can follow him on Twitter as at Bard Boiled, which Rob just absolutely loves. Loves that. In real life, due to legal entanglements and security concerns surrounding lost manuscripts, Mr. Daniels lives at a secure, undisclosed location. Most authors don't put their actual address in their bio. Just saying. Yeah, that's true. They usually shy away from people just showing up at their house. Dude, we're totally going to show up at Andrew Vack's house, though, now that I know where he lives. <laughs> Livius <Nice>. recently uh, <laughs> did a little detective work of his own. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, discovered Andrew Vax lives in Chicago, and I could have been stalking him for years now. So, Vax, if you're listening, <laughs> he's coming an eye out. <laughs> All right, here's a little bit about uh, Rotten at the Heart. This is the not-so-brief synopsis. London, 1596 which I was so tempted to say 1956. Uh, With their patron's mysterious death and their Puritan landlord's sudden determination to evict them, William Shakespeare and the Lord Chamberlain's men teeter on the brink of ruin. So when the new Baron Carey, son of their late sponsor, reveals to Shakespeare his suspicion that his father was murdered and demands that Shakespeare use his own powers of observation to ferret out the killer in exchange for Carey's continued patronage, Will has little choice but to agree. Shakespeare juggles his duties to his troop with a desolatory attempt at playing Seamus, only to find himself attacked by a hooded swordsman, his reputation besmirched by a vicious anonymous pamphleteer, and his every move marked by a strange man with a hideously scarred and deformed nose. His professional life unraveling, Shakespeare must now face a personal life destroyed by the tragic consequences of a failed affair. The death of his son, Hamnet and his estrangement from his wife, Anne. Driven at last to serve the truth, Shakespeare uncovers plots inside plots, some stemming from historical ills, some from the new evils of the burgeoning stock exchange, and all seeming aimed as much at Shakespeare as at his late patron. Rooted in historical fact and written in Will's own excessively Elizabethan voice, rotten at the heart, explores the intersection of religion, politics, and corruption, and underscores the sacrifices that honor demands when a troubled man finally discovers his own. His own honor. I'm assuming that's what that means at the end there. Yeah. So um, that wasn't difficult to read. <laughs> no, no. I, I just I find it amusing that between the, um, the 
author bio and the synopsis, there are more words than in the entire Shakespeare collection of, of plays. <laughs> uh, that was a little bit on the long-winded side, my friend. It is. So uh, let's get right into this. So the book actually kicks off in a very autobiographical fashion as we actually um, see um, our, our author, Bartholomew Daniels, purchase the, the trunk containing the Shakespearean um, journals, which Rob has a very interesting note here because he did a little bit of research. you want to talk about this a little bit? Like the synopsis said, the the book is is rooted in fact, but obviously it's fiction. But in the introduction written by uh, Bartholomew Daniels about finding discovering this um, um, trunk full of books that has a box inside of it um, and explaining basically that he found these really old papers, um, there's something written on the box, and it's um, in French, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but it, it, it translates to not without right. And um, I looked it up because I'm, I'm like, I'm curious that way. And I found that uh, this little bit that I found on Wikipedia um, about Shakespeare's family um, trying to attain a specific status uh, in the class system of, of England. And um, apparently, I mean, and it's, and it's echoed a little bit in the book, but uh, his father was eligible for a certain... Um, I guess, you know, title, not title, but you know what I'm saying? Like level, Mm -hmm. status, Um, status. Thank you very much. Um, but, uh, because he had some financial problems that kind of didn't happen and then it was kind of rebrought up. But anyway, um, the motto, not without right, um, it says was attached to the application for this status, but not used on any armorial displays that have survived. So, um, it's kind of, I guess, not being any kind of Shakespeare aficionado or knowing much about Shakespeare at all, um, a, a phrase that was prominent in uh, in his life, at least that part of his life, where in regards to his family's status, and it shows up in the introduction as part of the uh, that box that uh, the papers are discovered in. We should totally bring that status shit back. Um. Once our status improves a little bit, we could try and push for that, I think. <laughs> Seriously, dude, I'd cut somebody to be a gentleman. <laughs> that, well, if you're a gentleman, you get to cut people, too. So That works, yeah. Oh, I like how that works. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, basically, that's just a short couple of pages kind of detailing how these uh, manuscripts came um, you know, into our hands. And then from there, we kick right into... Uh, Shakespeare's life. Now, I'm not terribly familiar with the history of William Shakespeare, so I know, you know, Robert said some of this stuff was rooted in fact, which I assumed it was. I don't know how much of it, but we kind of pick up with Shakespeare, and he is uh, running a troupe of actors, um, and they have just lost their patronage, as it had mentioned in the synopsis. So, um, you know, the bard is going to do whatever he can to continue to secure coin to run his, uh, his little theater group. And that's where Baron Carey comes in. So his father um, had died, and um, his father was the one who was securing kind of regular funding for Shakespeare's group of actors. And so they were in the unfortunate position of trying to have to, in the time in the time of mourning, um, f- talk to Baron Carey about uh, keeping their funding. So Shakespeare has a conversation with Carey in which... Um, 
uh, he he's you know obviously expecting to have to approach the delicate matter of, of getting funding but Carrie turns it on him and says hey um, basically I had a dream that my father told me I was that he was murdered and um, now I want you to go find the killers and so he's kind of reluctantly pushed into a situation where in order to maintain his livelihood he has to become a detective and find out who killed his patron in true detective form that is not the only problem that Shakespeare has to deal with there's always that secondary problem um, there is a rival um, theater troupe um, that has a lot of money um, that is basically trying to put him out of business simultaneously um, as he is trying is already on his way out if he doesn't kind of solve this mystery so he's kind of juggling um, juggling a lot in this one including um, you know potential eviction from his own theater within a matter of days and then from there, um, other bumps in the road include uh, Puritans who are trying to do away with anything fun or entertaining in the world. Um, and the tragic death of a woman that Shakespeare had had some romantic entanglements with. Uh, that comes comes back to bite him a little bit as well. Yeah, just a little bit. Um, basically, and I don't think I'm giving anything away because this comes up pretty quickly. He... Um, is involved with a very young girl. I don't know that her age is ever made known to us. Um, but, you know, he basically seduces her and then kind of, you know, whatever, gets tired of her. Um, she winds up killing herself because he won't return her affections. And this is brought to light in pamphlets that are apparently distributed all over England, at least in places where they might hurt Shakespeare. Uh-huh. So it's like, face, it's like Facebook of the 1500s. <laughs> it was... <laughs> it was a viral video. Mm-hmm. This it's a it's a it's the YouTube video of its time. Um, yep. Which I have to think about it. It would be kind of cool to be a guy who runs a printing thing back in like that time, because mm-hmm. like that's the only way that information gets about besides people talking to each other. So it'd be kind of a, a, st- a position of power. Nowadays, everybody's yeah, got a printer. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. I didn't really think about that. <laughs> so um, really. The person that we always hear revered for, you know, the things that, you know, that he writes and the changes he made in, in f- like, every form of, of performance and writing pretty much ever um, is really down and out a lot throughout this book. And, and just nonstop things are trying to, to bring him down and people are, are, you know, against him and stuff. So it is, in, in a lot of ways, the traditional PI format where, like, pretty much everything's going against him. Uh and he's got to find a way to work through it. All right. And, of course, you know, the book kind of winds through, as Rob said, these different difficulties. And you can kind of see where, you know, it's heading in that kind of general PI direction where they may all tie together. Um, which is kind of cool because what we saw is what a very modern day, you know, private investigator story. Which Of which now that I think about it, we've had this conversation so many times. We've done quite a few of these PI stories, haven't we? Yeah, especially lately. Seems mm-hmm. like we're doing a lot of them. Yep. But the cool part about this is it was totally different because it takes place, you know, well over 400 years ago. It's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. 400 years from the year I graduated high school, to be honest, to be exact. <laughs> oh, God. Um, oh, yeah. So there's a there's a fairly large cast of characters I don't think we're going to go into. But, you know, Will has a lawyer that he's consulted that's a character. There are obviously some villains. Um, there is a young lady that becomes of interest named Mary. 
um, who, you know, again, become becomes kind of a central part to what's going on. And you kind of see that coming as soon as she's described as beautiful. You know, that's going to be the, yep. you know, the kind of like, I don't know, the, the, the woman in the P.I. story. Yep, she's um, pretty. Mm-hmm. And then you've got several of uh, several of Shakespeare's, um, you know, co-owners and, you know, employees, actors from his from his troupe, too. But a pretty big cast. Not hard to follow, though. Yeah, it stayed pretty simple. I mean, uh, it was very nicely grouped. So you have his company of actors, so that's easy to follow mm-hmm. uh, because they actually have names. Then you have his rivals, uh, the the landlord, the 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 rival um, gr- actors, and then everything else is just royalty and stuff. So you know, along with and the poor name, people and poor people, lots of poor people, yeah, and usually the royalty along with the name comes their title. So it's like, oh yeah, that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a the. <laughs> The preacher uh, killer is that what he was called? The preacher. Oh, was it priest hunter? Priest, priest hunter. hunter? Ah, that was yeah. close. That was not close at all. <laughs> the priest hunter, which is a guy who, um, in this time that the to- the story takes place, there's um there's a strong um element of of what is the Christians? I'm not a religious person. Catholics. Catholics. There it is. Mm-hmm. Um, the Catholics are not. Welcome and not liked, and anybody. And they, the Catholics basically practiced in in secret. And there was this dude who was the priest hunter, who basically all he did was he worked for the queen, and he discovered people who were not loyal to the religion, um, favored by the crown, and and you know got tortured confessions out of them and killed them and stuff like that. He's a pretty creepy dude. Yeah, and and not to skip around too much in this thing, but there's a there's a uh, chapter, I guess, several page account of a conversation that he has both with Baron Carey and with William Shakespeare, where there's some very interesting correlations made between what Shakespeare does in in entertaining us with with drama and comedy, and what he does in eliciting truth, which I thought was was fairly insightful into the mind of a. Um, torturer who doesn't do it so much to get paid, but actually kind of believes in what he does. Yeah, and there was that interesting psychology of um, the psychology side of William Shakespeare and his talents were basically that he uh, he used words um, as lies um, mm-hmm. to elicit specific responses from people, and that's how he made his living was basically um, tricking people. So that was interesting to see. Uh, everybody was very nervous around him, uh, talking to him, because they knew that he was so good with words that he would confuse them or he would get the best of them through words. Yep. Especially the women's in this book. The ladies. The ladies. Shakespeare. Falling all over William Shakespeare. Shakespeare. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, and then at its... It, at its heart, much of this book is um, social commentary. Robin mentioned some of the religious stuff um, that had gone on in that time, and there's a lot of insight into that, into poverty versus you know royalty, people standing in the community. I mean, there's a lot of really insightful stuff um, wrapped up in this mystery story. I mean, Shakespeare, obviously a very bright guy, but we kind of get to see inside his mind and his thoughts and how he kind of thinks through things and maybe presents, um, you know, Elizabethan England in a, in a, uh, in, in a way that we can kind of capture it a little better, not just its, um, descriptions, which weren't very, I mean, I didn't find them, you know, kind of overwhelming. It wasn't a lot about description of places, 
but the description of community and, and, and people's station in life, I thought was, was done very, very well. Yeah. A couple of the major themes that I saw were, um, people's disdain for the idea of, of, um, and this goes, this ties in a lot with honor and station and things like that. But, um, the idea of someone leeching off of someone else's work for their own gain, um, which ties into this huge, <laughs> this huge plot point, which I thought was so timely and hilarious is basically at some point, and this doesn't really spoil anything, um, because it's not a huge part of the book. Um, Shakespeare and his lawyer discover what's essentially like an Elizabethan like real estate bubble where <laughs> people are uh, <laughs> this is so ridiculous but they're unnaturally inflating the the value of property for for their own gain and um, the <laughs> I don't know it was just it was just kind of amusing because like we obviously uh, the United States went through something like that within the last six years or so and um, it was interesting that I don't know if it was something that was actually going on back then, but it was interesting to see how, uh, it, it, when it's set in a book like this, how things, you know, don't necessarily change as much as we think maybe they do. Yeah, and, and I wondered. I mean, I have to imagine that since there was money and intelligent and, um, you know, unscrupulous people, <laughs> that there have probably been ploys just like that. Um, but no, I thought the same thing that it was, and like I said, social commentary kind of also relating to to some of what we do today um, in this book. I mean, it's you know you have to kind of step back and remember that as a fictional work, even though it's presented as the journals of William Shakespeare, you know, you've got to kind of figure out what was actual author um, ideas versus you know truth and reality. Yeah, and then one other theme I noticed that I want to at least mention really briefly is that. Um, obviously, in in that time and place, women held you know, uh, women had a lot of struggle and they had um, very little to look forward to. I'm probably saying this in, in the not the best way, but essentially, um, if you were a woman, uh, you were a child, and then you became old enough to be married, and then you did your wife duties, and that was it. Unless you ended up being the queen or something, that's a different story. But for the most part, you could expect to do very little. Um, but the some of the strongest characters, in my opinion, in the entire book were the women who uh, um, were just very strong-willed and and had probably the most. Um, I guess in in the terms of the book, they had the most honor. Um, they were the most uh, selfless and 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 you know well-intentioned people in the book. Oh, as women frequently are. It was nice to see, though, 400 years mm -hmm. ago, these women. Strong women characters. Yep. So, All right, let's move on a little bit. Let's talk language. So what did you think when we had decided we were going to read something that was supposed to be kind of culled from the journals of Shakespeare? I thought it was going to be really difficult to read. Yeah, and it wasn't, was it? It was not. Although yeah. it did do a good job of emulating what I think would be the, you know, the language of the time probably a little bit dumbed down i'm guessing yeah and that's that was one of the thoughts i had was oh i'm really enjoying this and i think it's really well written of course i have zero to compare it to from you know from a authenticity standpoint of is this what it would be like to read the journal of william shakespeare you know um, right. but i found it very interesting and and very well written that it flowed rather nicely and was very very eloquent throughout and it made me think that 
Um, either the author is very well practiced in, in speaking this way, or he put a hell of a lot of work into it to get it, you know, the way it is. Right. I kind of had the same thought that, uh, and I will say that I did think about it throughout the reading, but I didn't think it pulled me away from the story was at some points I was thinking, well, how would this have been written for a modern day, you know, as a modern day sentence? Um, Mm -hmm. and, and, and then of course also wondering, was this something that was written in plain modern English and then translated, or was it written as it was written the way it ended up? I had that same wonder about if it was drafted, you know, in, in simple modern day, you know, literary speak. And then, so interesting, but, um, easily to me, one of the most enjoyable, um, parts of the book was just the words, just the sentences. Sure, we I, I have plenty of examples of quotes. If you want to move on mm-hmm. to that, um, yeah, we can we can hop right into that. I don't know how much more story we can do. I'm not really going to do a lot of setup for these because most of the quotes I have really kind of explain themselves. He paused for a moment, still in his soldier's face. His eyes now a message that asked no question, required no answer, and brooked no dispute. I am going to read. I think I marked this one kind of as an example of the language used. Um, so I have a whole long paragraph, so I'm just going to stop at some point, and I'm probably going to trip over some of the wording as it flowed well in my head. I don't know that it'll roll off the tongue the same way. Yet I am no Catholic. On matters of religion, I am convinced that any attempt to reduce to human custom and practice the will of a God infinitely exceeding the capacity of our understanding is folly. At best, an innocent folly that encourages some charity and blunts the less holy impulses of our animal natures. In common practice, a banal folly booing the hearts of men, who hear in the pause between each beat the empty echo of their own mortality, so that through all history they have... You know, and it goes on and on. But I thought that was a fair example of some of the speech when it wasn't trying to be clever. Right. Yeah, I'm not going to even do any setup on this one. I am at heart unchurched, though I do bend my knee in whichever direction the crown commands for my own safety's sake. Still, I am not unfaithed. I am each day reminded, if only by an unexpected flower, a happy fragrance, a gifted tankard of the unearned and pervasive benevolence that girds us each against the pestilence of our banal condition. What beauties we enjoy we neither fashion nor earn, and yet they alone save us from the living damnation of our petty grubbing. It's good stuff. It is good stuff. Here's a little bit about Shakespeare's um, extramarital um, <laughs> affairs. I am wifed, but being most times a bachelor in London whilst she is in far Stratford, I have treated the surly bounds of that churched alliance with the same elasticity to which they so oft have been stretched by even our most royal personages, and with the same diligence and honor with which our churchmen protect their pledged chastity. For I could envision no god who would from a poor scribe demand fealty beyond that of those kings and priests that he hath in wisdom unbound by human frailty chosen with his own hand. And whilst these august men have oft plucked and on and on and on. Sorry. so difficult (laughs) to go through, man. It is, but it's really, really fun to read. All right. Uh, This one was just, the, the last half of this is just, it blew my mind. The, uh, the overall sentiment of it. In seeing her, I felt as though suddenly gifted with some new sense, felt both with my heart and from lower down. Such senses as to make the eyes and ears and nose and tongue and skin feel envy, that they can only each in part experience what I could feel in total. Dude, that is good stuff. There is so much good stuff in here. 
um, a little bit we talked about, and this I guess kind of takes um, takes it because a little bit of what you just read and what we talked about earlier about him using his um, his uh, wit to bed the ladies. Having been told in countless beds that I am comely of both face and form, that I have an easy wit, and that I speak words that lay lightly on the ear, I would now, with these godly tools, ply for Satan that unplied flesh. <laughs> about to throw down. Here's a little gr- about greed. It is a new world to me, and much strange, always of lawyers and shares and lenders and charters of such dense construction that we no longer understand our own affairs. Always, instead, we seem to find some other mouth feeding at a teat we had thought our own, and feeding a man grown much fat for no enterprise of my understanding. Dude, you skipped over the one that we both have. (laughs) Can I do it really quick? Yeah. Are we now to measure a man by the love of his servants? Shall we ask the furniture, too, how well it enjoyed the press of his arse? Is that the one? Yes. (laughs) That was good. We talked a little bit about Puritans and how they hate fun, as Rob put it. (laughs) Um, The man was outfitted in the plain and looser cut of dull brown, much preferred by the Puritans. In their lust to deny any joy to mankind, they dressed to displease the eye in the costume of large turds. (laughs) I had that one, too. Oh, did you? I did. I took it out. This, This... Next quote I'm going to do was in an argument between Shakespeare and his father, which I thought was like really, really harsh. Um, But it was about whether Shakespeare is a religious person or not. My sins are of my appetites and my selfishness and my faithless holding of other hearts, and as such are vile enough. But to be godly would require that I do purposeful evil and then to pretend it good. That I constant seek chance to stand judge of my fellows and then do them grievous ill in service of an imagined master. In the shadow of such sins that I already have so careless committed, I am sufficient darkened. I have no stomach for more and so will not be godly. That's harsh, dude. My probably what I found to be one of the best written um, engagements in this book um, was between Shakespeare and his wife. And I'm actually not going to read this part. I, I think that for people who are going to read this book, I think they need to read this themselves. But the argument he has when he first returns home after his son dies was, um, like I said, probably my favorite exchange um, through the course of the book. I am going to skip that, but I will go to um, uh, kind of Shakespeare reflecting a little bit after the uh, after the argument. I knew, too, in this vain exercise, the truth of my wife's words. My mind could make true any thought I did think, and then make it false, and then make it both. Whether from cowardice, or hope, or stubbornness, or just simple sloth, I would not take arms against my sea of troubles, and by opposing end them, for I did not have the courage enough for even that. It was a very good um, part of the book, the whole thing between him and his wife. Um, I got two more. This one is a little bit lengthy, so bear with me. But uh, it's about it's Shakespeare essentially reflecting on on kind of the illusion of what um, charity from the higher classes is versus what it's perceived to be from those higher classes. Meanwhile, we creatures that lived in those higher branches considered our debts and fortunes in Congress with one another, ignoring complete the larger debt. For our lofty perch was owed to those soiled thousands that did faithful support its roots. 
even while those same roots did use them so foul. I realized sudden and in shame that what we call charity is only a late and partial payment to parties we have much abused and who have no hope in law to make claim, as the law is a creation of us finer creatures and bent at every turn to our purposes. We use it to harsh hold the poor to their stations and us to ours. Then, as we shit our waste to the forest floor, we call it charity and congratulate ourselves on our generous exercise of God's mercies. So I said, dude, really insightful. Yeah. Um, the, the author obviously has uh, some pretty pointed opinions on the world and <laughs> I think used, uh, used the bard to, to share them with us, but in a very, very eloquent way. Um, the last quote I'm going to do, um, the, the setup's just, I, I can't read before it, it's just too messy. So basically it's Shakespeare um, coming to an understanding of how similar um, religion and, and what he does, theater, how similar they are. For what was religion really, except such human theater through which we tried to ple- please a distant audience whose tastes we little understood? Nice. Yeah, I like that a lot. I got one last one. This is from the Mary character. Um, when Shakespeare kind of naively talks about how blessed she is to be so beautiful. Blessed, sir, so that I feel the crawl of every man's eyes across my body like a corruption of spiders. Ew, spiders. Yeah, that's creepy. That is a little creepy. That does a lot to illustrate just how bad it could feel to be constantly checked out, I guess. How bad it is what you do to the women's. <laughs> oh, poor Willie. <laughs> uh, we should wrap this up. We should. Um, after you, sir. All right. Um, I guess the major intimidation of reading a book like this is that I know nothing about William Shakespeare. Um, and the only exposure I have to any of Shakespeare's writing is through what I got in high school. So um, it was just a very untapped area of knowledge for me um then also the next step would be that it's probably going to be written all fancy like uh and it was written all fancy like but very very approachable and um it seemed even though i am naive pretty faithful to um what i know of you know the writer and the time so um that being said it was pretty easy to overcome those worries and just enjoy a story and um the story essentially is a is a private investigator hired by someone more or less against his will um to get to the truth of something in order to kind of preserve his way of life and um it's just entertaining throughout it's got uh it's got its funny moments it's i mean it's very entertaining um but it's also got its serious moments and it's got that under kind of underlying social commentary on on several different themes so uh start to finish everything about it is just a really entertaining and and impressively well-written book especially since he's trying to emulate kind of an elizabethan um era uh so that's all to say that i dug this book and um in in the tradition of at least Dan O'Shea's books, who is a good friend of Bartholomew Daniels. <laughs> um, this book is going to be highly rated for me, and I'm going to go with uh, four and a half stars on it. Yeah, my wrap-up is going to sound a lot like Rob's. Um, I was a little intimidated at the thought of reading something in the, you know, 
quote-unquote old English speak, um, as I've never really done that before. But uh, Barty Daniels here, uh, you know, made it very, um, if not easy, very enjoyable um, to read. And I did find myself rereading sentences, not because I didn't understand them, because I loved the way they flowed. So um, Dan O'Shea is going to be reading here shortly in Chicago this weekend, I think. It's, it's something I won't be able to make it out to. But I was interested at the thought that he might read from Bartholomew Daniels, his friend's book, and I'd love to hear this done in a longer form by, by somebody who can handle it, not me and Rob, because we did a terrible job of it, <laughs> in case you didn't notice. Uh, I'm sure it can be pulled off much better than that. Yeah, one of the things we didn't th- talk about was how funny it was, and it wasn't so much laugh-out-loud funny as it was really, really witty. Um, Shakespeare has numerous um, interactions with people where, where he kind of defeats them with his wit um, in a very you know amusing way, and it was really enjoyable from that. As a PI story, it, it stood up to a lot of the other things we've reviewed here, um, but I really think that uh, at its heart, um, this story is, <laughs> uh, is great social commentary um, and just really beautifully written, I think, from that standpoint. Again, I have nothing to compare this to, so if you're like a Shakespeare scholar and you pick this up and find it not to hold muster, in that language, I apologize, um, but I would recommend it simply for reading the words alone. And I, I think I'm with Rob on this four and a half stars. All right. Well, this is not a one-off. There is going to be more of William Shakespeare, the detective. A- oh, it's teased right at the end of the book, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Well, the queen, you know. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah well, sorry. Never mind. Never mind. Hold on. You didn't take that part out. Yeah, I know. But, <laughs> Yeah, it is teased at the end of the book. That, yeah, um, yeah, a death owed God is the uh, the next book in what I have to imagine is probably going to be a series, um, and it is due out at the end of this year, December thirtieth, two thousand fourteen. Again by Exhibit A Books. Well, Exhibit A is doing lots of good stuff, aren't they? They rose up out of nowhere. We, I think, the first time it's an imprint of Angry Robot, which we mm-hmm. first mentioned when they were doing. Um, this thing with bookstores where you bought a print copy and you got a free ebook. That's the first time Angry Robot hit our, our, our radar. And that was probably, what, a year, year and a half ago? Mm-hmm. And then, boom, all of a sudden they're just putting out Chuck Wendig, and then from Wendig, you know, um, we just get all these other names, which, by the way, um, there's a lot to talk about right now. I'm going to let you kick this off. Yeah, um, Angry Robot and Exhibit A um, is host to a lot of stuff that we like. <laughs> Um, so first, um, big congratulations to Nick Corpin, longtime friend of this show, for selling his book Fate, F-A-I-T, um, AV, short for Avenue, um, to Exhibit A Books. Um, you know, as Rob had mentioned, Bartholomew Daniels, Dan O'Shea, Matthew Funk, Rob Hart, um, both have books coming out. Uh, Chuck Wendig is at Angry Robot. Um, but yeah, definitely, I'm looking forward to reading Fate AV by Nick um, in the future, sometime by the end of the year, I think, right? Late fall? It's either, I thought it was January or February of 15, no, but I could be. be wrong about that. Yeah, that could be. Yeah, so very exciting stuff, and uh, congrats to those guys, because I don't think we've read a stinker in the in the whole bunch that we've read from them. Not at all. And can I say I'm noticing a trend? Uh, Nick Corpon, book deal with Exhibit A, mm-hmm. author in the book Anthology. Mm-hmm. Matt Funk. Yeah. Story in the book anthology book deal with Exhibit A. Mm-hmm. I think that the book, <laughs> and this might might be me like abusing like the transitive property and everything, but like if you are in the book anthology, I think eventually you're going to get a book deal. Is what I'm getting out of this. 
You know what? And let's let's not let's not speculate. Let's just look at fact. Paul Tremblay, six figure six That's figure true. signing deal immediately after appearing in the book anthology. Yeah. 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 So this is fact. I'm not saying this is why it happened. Yeah. Simply disclosing that the timeline is this. Um, people who have had a story in the booked anthology seem to be getting a book deal very shortly after that. That's right. Um, Richard Thomas with the uh, he got a whole small press. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. After being in the booked <laughs> anthology, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of good stuff happening to folks who uh, who, who you know who partook. That's so. right. So really, what we're saying is, if you decided not to send us a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's your own damn fault, and you're probably yeah. cursed. Your writing career is pretty much over, except for Stephen yeah, Graham a, Jones. Nothing can stop him. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's an indestructible force there. But yeah, you know, there are some people who didn't submit story, and you know, I haven't seen any new books from them lately. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. That's right. So. <sighs> anyway, big congratulations to Nick, and congratulations to Exhibit A Books for picking up a terrific author. Um, Exhibit A, there's still, I don't know, probably 15 or 16 authors in the book anthology who have books ready to go. So if you want to get in contact with us, we can put you in touch with those people. Maybe put in a good word for you. Yeah, yeah, we have connections. We are mm-hmm. really what we are at our core is a creator of connections. Am I right? It is. It is, and I don't know. I don't know how much we've ever talked about that on the show, but it is pretty cool when we see some of the people that we've managed to be the conduit for their um, budding relationship. Yeah, there are definitely situations where I see someone on Facebook commenting about this or something with this, and I'm thinking, if our podcast didn't exist, that connection never would have been made. Yeah, it's really yeah. weird, but nice. It's very, very weird and nice. <laughs> and we're making more, more connections here in the month of May, right? Yeah, um, and this, this is kind of full circle on how somewhat incestuous our, uh, our, our entire, I guess, the writing community ends up being. So we're going to be at the Crime Spree hosted Noir at the Cantina in Milwaukee on May seventeenth, uh, hosted by. Like I said before, Crime Spree. And it's got uh, some authors who you may, uh, whose names you may recognize. Ruth Jordan. Brian, I'm going to totally say this wrong. Quatermos? Quatermos? That's better than I would have done. Um, who is the guy who um, buys books for Exhibit A. So mm-hmm. we're going to bring a copy of the book anthology and just get it all done. I think. <laughs> just going to highlight some of the, the <laughs> TOC. <laughs> You're Brian. These are the people you need to reach out to. Mm-hmm. Um Rob Riley's Frank Wheeler Jr., Matthew Clemens, and Hillary Davidson are the readers up there at Noir at the Cantina. We're going to be there recording it like we always do, and we're going to bring it to you as episodes of this podcast. Do you know that a cantina is a, actually a type of bar popular in Italy, Mexico, and Spain? Oh. Yeah. I know that. So it's still Noir at the bar, just like a fancier foreign bar. I talked to John, the guy, uh, the kind of one of the head guys over at Crime Spree, um, about doing the recording, and he was saying that they're working on special edition T-shirts just for this event. Harold the Crayon T-shirts? No, it's actually going to be like a Day of the Dead style skull. Oh, nice! That says Noir at the Cantina, I think, on it. Interesting, very yeah. interesting. Yeah. So we're looking forward to um, these. Are all. All these people are foreign to us, these readers. It's it's rare that we go to an event where there isn't, uh, you know, David James Keaton, basically, or someone that we know. So Yeah, it's a new blood for us, but uh, mm-hmm. we've got a bit of a, a relationship with Crime Spree. We know um, John over there and Tim, Tim Hennessy, who uh, 
I've, I've met a couple times. Liv, you've met him, I think, once. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been writing some stuff for them recently, too. So we got enough of a, an in. And apparently, whenever we go places, people know who we are. And they don't. we don't know who they are. So I'm sure that's going to happen at least once or twice up there. Do you think that's because you're wearing the T-shirt? It's probably... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that wasn't like a humble brag or anything. I, uh, <laughs> I am a, I have well, and the tattoo. Yeah, that, uh, yes, that because I mean, I gotta be honest with you. If Hillary Davidson's wearing a shirt that says Hillary Davidson on the front. I'm gonna be like, hey, hey you're Hillary Davidson. You're Hillary Davidson, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah I love so. stuff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, all right, so, um, dude, we reviewed the Elvis Room very recently. Very recently, great stuff, right? Absolutely. What could make a great story like the Elvis Room even better for you? Uh, exactly one thing. I got an envelope from the Royal Mail today on my day off. And I'm thinking there's only one person sending me stuff via the Royal Mail. Michael Wilson. Because um, I did the pre-order for the, the Elvis room. I wanted to get a physical copy of it. Uh, tear the envelope open. Careful not to mess with the postage stamp from the Royal Mail because I think it's really cool for some reason. And pop it out and open up the front page. Boom. Signed by Stephen Graham Jones, number one of 100. See, it pays to, to do stuff with this is horror, doesn't it? I feel like, yeah, it's because uh, I feel like I was I got some special attention. Yes, very, very cool. Um, Rob posted a picture of that. He sent me a picture of it, but I actually saw it on Facebook before I saw it on my phone. Um, yes, very, very nice. I'm very excited One about of that. 100. Very cool. I just wonder if he sent out 100 of them that all said number one. That was my concern. <laughs> so everyone just pops up that, that Stephen or Michael don't know how to number books. <laughs> just to I'll just say, it is because it is one of a hundred, no matter which one it is, right? Right. It is one yeah. of a hundred. It is one of the hundred. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm worried it's just like, you only got one of the 100. Not like, so if I had bought four of them, it would be four of a hundred. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, what happened is Stephen signed one thing, sent it over to Michael, and then he printed it out and... Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm yeah, just kidding. Yeah. Yeah, that, that could happen. At any rate, that's awesome. Um, we love the guys at This Is Horror if we haven't said it enough. Um, it's probably time to get on board and do something else with them soon. It's been a couple months. What are you talking about? I do a monthly column for them. I'm always writing stuff. No, no, I met, I met with the podcast. Oh, oh. So, uh, Not my own selfish, you know. Yeah, whatever. You've been whoring yourself out to anybody that'll give you space. Let's be honest. <laughs> I have been a little bit prolific lately, haven't I? Yes, I'm change my last name to Richard Thomas. <laughs> Rob Richard Thomas is <laughs> hyphenated. Writing stuff Richard everywhere. hyphen Thomas. Yeah. Um, the I, the, I just got reminded of uh, a message I got from Stephen Graham Jones the other day. We were talking about the uh, art, the interview that went up with Crime Spree in the print version of Crime Spree magazine issue number fifty-five, and then also on the website. We were talking about. Um, the interviews we've done recently because I had done that written interview for Crime Spree, but we also did an interview for Booked. And he was like, and yeah, what's when's the other one, the other interview going up? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And <laughs> after a little back and forth, um, he may have done something with Rob Hart from um, Lit Reactor, but just thought it was me. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I think we only did two. <laughs> so that just shows you that Stephen Graham Jones was not writing is just constantly going. Dude, do you listen to Q101 at all? No. This was not in my notes, but you mentioned Rob Hart again. I thought about it. Um, I think the guy who does their traffic in the morning is named Rob Hart. 
<laughs> I, I know his name, Rob Hart. I think it's traffic, but every morning when I go to work, it's like, oh, this is Rob Hart on Q101. And I was like, that guy, not only does he have a podcast and a book coming out, but he also does the traffic <laughs> for the only radio station in Chicago I listen to. Hey, maybe he'll be doing, a, this is a throwback to like 150 episodes ago, but maybe he'll be doing some ratings for some Transformer movies in the future. That uh, That very much could be. Oh, no, that's the traffic guy. My bad. It was a traffic guy for a, a radio <laughs> station in Minnesota. Anyway. All right. Um, I guess we could maybe talk about what we've got coming up. Oh, we missed one thing. Hopefully, um, by the time you're listening to this, um, our first episode um, of Crime Wave will be up. That's right. Uh, we uh, have recorded and soon we'll be posting our first hosted episode of the Crime Wave podcast. We're... Uh, Kenneth Wishnia reads from his upcoming book, The Red House. So excited to uh, get that in people's ear holes and see what they think about us talking about crime and nothing but crime. So um, we didn't mention this on that podcast because we tried to maintain, you know, our kind of professional demeanor um, as, as we're kind of, uh, you know, hosting somebody else's podcast. Dude, how hard was it to do that podcast? It was really foreign. Like, <laughs> Because the format's different, the content is different, and there's different things that need to be talked about. It's just, it, it, I didn't realize we had such a, a format, and and a, and you know, it's almost like muscle memory the way we, we we feel like it's so free and flowing because it's what we do all the time. And then trying to switch gears and do a different style is just like really strange. Yeah, yeah, it is, and we kept stopping. <laughs> we were just like, we're like, what do we say? Yeah. I don't know what to do next. What should I say? Did I say that okay? So hopefully it probably sounds a lot like our first couple episodes of Booked. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, if we don't get fired by our new boss, Seth Harwood, um, we'll, we'll probably catch a groove doing that. But uh, it was a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to doing more. Yeah, definitely check it out. And um, just because we're doing this kind of in the spirit of crossovers and everything we are, Offering a discount for people who listen to Crime Wave. We can talk about that here, right, Livius? Yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? So, I don't remember exactly when we said this went through. You'll have to go over to the other podcast um, to get the full details, but we are offering a discount for the listeners of Crime Wave. So, maybe we'll tease it that way. Um, so, they have to go over and listen, but you can get a discount on the booked anthology if you listen to that episode. Yep. And we encourage you to listen and subscribe. That's right. So, what do we got in the horizon, all right. Livius? All right, here we go. We have some really great stuff and some some interesting stuff that we're going to be doing next week. Um, <laughs> something I've been looking forward to for a while. Michael Paul Gonzalez's Miss Massacre's Guide to Murder and Vengeance. Um, Rob, I got to tell you, even though he sent us a copy, I went ahead and pre-ordered a copy of the Kindle edition because he's doing this uh, send proof that you bought it, and I'm sending you this really cool pink and black shotgun shell filled with, like, fake pills. I saw that. My goal, get Michael Paul Gonzalez arrested by the postal, like, general <laughs> or whoever it is that handles that kind of stuff because he's going to be sending, like, shotgun shells to the Chicago area. I don't think you can do that. We're going to find out, yeah. We are, but I'm very much looking forward to that. And then sometime after that, a Christopher Moore book which we haven't done in ages. Um, actually, the sequel to Fool, which we both read not for this podcast because it came out long before we were doing this, but uh, very excited to read The Serpent of Venice, um, which will be coming up in a couple of weeks. And then, then, 
the first full-length novel by musician Rick Springfield called Magnificent Vibration. Um, this is going to be about him, like, with sex toys on a tour bus or something, isn't it? No, no, hold on. You ready for it? Sometimes heavenly intervention can put you through hell. 288 pages of Simon & Schuster goodness. We're probably going to run a little later than I wanted to on that. We did get um, a galley, digital galley copy um, that was absolutely unreadable. Not because of its content, but because of its formatting. So, yeah. publishers, if you're using NetGalley, fucking find out a different way to do this. Don't do this to your to your reviewers. Just, god damn it, I don't know. <laughs> I'd rather I, read a PDF than something I got through NetGalley. Dude, I commented on someone's stats the other day. I was like, I'd rather eat my own ass than read something through NetGalley. <laughs> Fuck, and I'm not that flexible, so it hurts my back when I try. Is there like, like a tube involved? And it's just... Oh. It's terrible. But at any rate, Rick Springfield um, will probably have to purchase copies, which means we won't be able to hit it right on release date, which is what I was hoping for initially. Um, but yeah, totally stoked to read some Rick Springfield fiction. I've already got music pick, picked out for that episode. We're not doing music anymore. <laughs> Can we do it for that episode? Uh, fine, fine. We're not doing Like music all through anymore. the episode? There may be recordings of me doing Jesse's Girl karaoke style somewhere. Oh, available man. I will throw from, that up. From, from L.A. What? Really? With Gordon Highland. Ah, I remember this. In the cabana. In the cabana. I actually sang mm-hmm. that night, too. I was talking to, um, I can't remember who I was talking to about that recently. When I was in mm-hmm. Seattle, we were talking about that. I was like, remember when Gordon and Anthony Jakes busted out the guitar and it was like a, mm-hmm. a big hippie love fest? Yep. So um, come back in a few, well, come back every week. But in a few weeks, maybe, just maybe, there might be audio of me and Gordon Highland doing Jesse's Girl. Oh, God. That's going to be our best, uh, our best, biggest downloaded episode ever, I think. It, it might be. It might be. We might get kicked off of iTunes, though, because I sound so frighteningly like Rick Springfield when I'm singing. They might think that we're using a... It's like a they copyright using, yeah, kind yep, of thing. Yep. Yep. Totally possible. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for our first ever Shakespeare-related book review um, episode where we promise that Livius is going to sing about Rick Springfield. Sing like (laughs) Rick Springfield? Anyway, that wraps it up for this week. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livius Ned. Keep reading. (laughs) 